Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Yes, a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good evening to you, however you may be listening, and wherever you may be listening. This is the Man on the Post podcast. Let's do what we always do, and that's introduce our guest. And we shall start by heading across the North Sea to Holland, to James Rowe. Good evening to you, James. Good evening, fellas. How are you all? Good, good. And then we head up to, I believe it's somewhere in Essex. He keeps changing his location weekly. It's Colin. Yeah, hi there, everybody. Glad to be here. Yeah, I always keep you on your toes, Matthew, moving around. You do. And making his appearance for his first appearance for a while, a um, bit of a brave one, considering that he is both Rangers and Arsenal, considering the day that both his teams have had. It's a good evening to Andy. Andy, how are you today? Results uh, aside. Yeah, not too bad. Glasgow is uh, somehow still standing. So, uh, yeah, not too bad. Is someone's doorbell going in the background? <laughs> it's not mine right okay that's a noise right so let us kick off with the big stories in the week of football and there's only really one place to start and it's of the home of football and that is Wembley is likely to be sold to Shahid Khan the greatest football owner that has ever lived and ever will live the owner of Fulham and of course the Jacksonville Jaguars the NFL team and I'll just jump straight off the bat. What were your first thoughts when you heard when you heard this news? Um, Colin, you're the Englishman. I'll sort of kick off with you, seeing as it's almost appropriate. In fact, you're the only Englishman on the panel, so it affects you the most. All right, okay. Um, well, first of all, I'm no fan of when it was decided that Wembley should be rebuilt. Um, I was more in favour of it being built in the Midlands, possibly Birmingham, um, but more in the camp of we, we don't actually need a Wembley anyway. We'll just go to Old Trafford, Villa Park, etc., etc., and do sort of a nationwide tour. That being said, it has been built now, so that decision's gone, okay? Um, and a lot of people are saying, oh, well, now's an opportunity for us to go around the country. We had that decision, and the decision was made by the FA, no, that's not good enough. We need a home for English football, and it will be Wembley. Um, so, okay, fine. But what's changed then? Um, I mean, there's a whole lot of questions I've got here. Um, I mean, the first thing that I thought of was, something doesn't smell quite right here. Um, there was all sorts of ideas coming into my head. I mean, apparently now, according to an article by David Conn, apparently... Um, the Fulham guy wants to pay six hundred million for for Wembley. That doesn't sound enough to me. Um, and what happens to all the existing debt as well? And fundamentally, my issue is that I wouldn't trust the FA as far as I could throw them, because every opportunity they've had to, whether it be on sexism cases, racism cases, they've always put their foot in it. 
you know, they've somehow made things even worse. Um, so I'm just a little bit dubious about the whole thing. I don't know why there's even a need to sell it. Well, the whole reason that it's being sold <clears throat> in the, the whole marketing, I suppose you can call it a marketing campaign, around it being sold is that the money will go to the FA and this $600 million or you know, however much it's going to cost. I was listening to Sports Week this morning, and he said that you know the FA are going to get six hundred million, but Shahid Khan, in terms of a variety of things, I think including paying off the debt, it will cost him a billion pounds. But it'll, but the FA will receive six hundred. And the main slogan that's been touted around is that it will go to the grassroots of English football. So, you know, off the top of my mind, that reads as. You know, 10,000 3G pitches across the country all paid for. So we don't get this sort of nightmare scenario that seems to that seems to happen every week where no, no, no under 11 team in the country plays a game of football because it's all waterlogged in December sort of thing. So I think that's yeah. really what what it's all about. It's the FA instead of plowing 150 million. I think that's what they pay or what the cost of Wembley is each year. They're just getting a six hundred million pound payment one off. It's yeah. basically what it is. Right. Okay. Now, I would. This is where I have a real issue because that is not an argument. All these, you know, um, you know, pictures that are going to be changed and all this lot. I don't buy it for a second. And if their argument is that this money is going to be invested in grassroots football, one, I've heard it before. It didn't happen. And two. Surely that's a lack of failure on themselves because that's their job. Grassroots football. It's not making a profit. <laughs> it's improving grassroots football. You shouldn't have to sell your home to invest in grassroots football. That's a little bit like um, a football club saying, right, um, our stadium's worth 500 million quid. Because we've mismanaged it and we've pissed all the money away, we're going to sell our ground. Um, we'll use somebody else's. Um, and we'll take that 500 million quid and actually use that for what we should have been doing day to day anyway. Yeah, like I said, there's you know various minutiae about the move that you know is yet to be sort. Like I said, that's just the one main thing that's been brought up. You know, there's all there's all the minor things. You know, now that you know, the club Wembley seats, you know, because that was sort of paid to the FA. Now, you know that those 10 year licenses are gone. You know, they don't have to have the semi-final there every every year. And now because the money's not going to the FA, it's going to Shahid Khan as a result. You know, the FA may decide, because again, he said on Sports Week this week, basically the FA are just going to sort of uh, rent it whenever they want. So so all the England home <sighs> games are going to stay there. But they may decide, you know, yes, maybe all the semi-finals are going to be there, but on the odd occasion where, you know, Manchester City play Liverpool, will say, right, that one, we're going to take it and play it at Old Trafford. Or if Man City play Chelsea, we're going to say, right, take that away from Wembley, this one, and put it at Villa Park. That's sort of all I've heard about it. Um, Andy, what was what was your view when you first, when you first heard about this? So, yeah, I mean, my first view was... Why are they being allowed to sell something that was paid for with public money? I think that was that was my first reaction. I must admit, I don't know the ins and outs of it too much. Yeah. Obviously, Shahid Khan has talked about using this stadium potentially uh, for a new NFL franchise. 
I mean, if you're t- talking away from football for a moment, you know, I think that in itself is quite exciting. But we are kind of going through something similar at the moment where the talk is of the SFA potentially selling Hamden and moving Scotland games and uh, kind of cup finals and so on to Murrayfield, which, to be fair, is a is a is a much better stadium. Um, I'm. To me, this feels a little like the FA have been presented with an opportunity to undo a mistake they shouldn't have made in the first place. Um, I don't think you need a national stadium. Uh, I think if you're looking to keep uh, fans around the country interested in football, then it makes sense for the national team to go around the country almost on tour, so to speak. Uh, it's not like England doesn't have enough, you know, real high-quality stadiums to do that. Uh, and the FA, I think, here have been presented with an opportunity to essentially get their money back. Um, and so it's it's difficult for me to see beyond this as anything other than the FA essentially being bailed out. But and I completely agree with what you're saying there, Andy. And the problem is, is that the maths doesn't make any sense. Okay, yeah. we, England... The FA, and as you very rightly said, public money, spent £757 million on Wembley, right? £757 million. Yeah. They're going to sell it for £600 million. Mm-hmm. Now, this is in London, right? Prices don't yeah. go down in London, okay? Secondly, the debt of what they've got to pay off is £140 million, Yeah. Okay? So, somewhere along the lines, through selling concert, well, hosting concerts by Beyonce, Monster Truck Racing... Billy Joel, whoever, you know, they've made that money back. Now, what the FA should do is, I'll tell you what they should do, is say, yeah, the um, Jacksonville Jaguars, yeah, you, you can be at Wembley, you pay us rent, you pay the FA rent and yeah. help us to bring the debt down. And any profit that Wembley makes, which obviously it is, um, that is what should go into grassroots football. 600 million quid will disappear in less than a year and then we'll be back at the same old place of still got shit pictures and now England are playing at um, MK Dons for a game and then Elland Road and you know that sort of thing so I, I can't help but feel there's a, there's an element that this is I, I accept that this is me completely stretching but the difference between when Wembley was built and now is that Brexit has been voted for and is going to happen. And I can't help wonder if there's some kind of European funding issue there where the FA have panicked, seen that they're maybe likely to lose some kind of funding revenue that way. I'm not sure. I might be, again, that might be anybody who knows better can feel free to correct me. But um, it, it just feels like the FA sees this as potentially their only real major source of income over the next... Uh, next we will uh, I, I completely agree I think and being in London the amount that they could charge for, for leasing or even just renting out for weekends or, or, or concerts and so on by the way Beyonce Billy Joel and Monster Trucks is a concert I would happily pay to see right now <laughs> um, who headlines that who headlines <laughs> uh, oh that's a good question Billy Joel on the piano as Beyonce makes her entrance on top of the monster truck. <laughs> yeah, that's how it works. That's yeah, it. absolutely. That's exactly how it should go. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I just feel like the FA, 
you're right, something stinks here, and I, I don't think we're ever going to get the full answer, but to me, it kind of seems like the FA are perhaps worried about uh, funding over the next few years and maybe see this as some kind of way to tide them over. Yeah. Um, I just before we before we bring James in on this, I just want to make two quick things. A lot of talk that's it's been brought about is that Shahid Khan will use this as a way to bring the Jacksonville Jaguars to London. I want to put on record: I don't think they're moving to London at least for the foreseeable future, at least for twenty years, because yeah. I because I interviewed um, one of their vice presidents when I went and uh, did some research for my master's dissertation. And I can I can really only take it on their word. They're not moving. And if you look at the renovation, look it up, Google it. Look at the renovations that is going on that Shahid Khan is paying for in the in Jacksonville and the Jacksonville area. They're not doing all that. And look at the, the renovation that's already been done. You know the fact that they've got the world's biggest scoreboard and you know a pool in the stadium, all that sort of stuff. They're not doing that. He's not doing that. Matt, putting could, all that money in to then move the team away in you know in five years time could i, could I, I just jump in there yep sure if that's the case why is he buying it it's a bit like me buying your house paying you rent paying your rent for you and you live in that house for free what why why is he doing it well I've, I've i've got a theory on that actually quick we're well, sorry Matt. i'll 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 make yep, this yep, one sure. quick I'd, I have an opinion on that. I agree. I don't think he's going to move the Jacksonville Jaguars there. However, anybody with even a remote knowledge of sports knows that they've been talking about having an NFL franchise in Britain for years now. And if Khan himself isn't necessarily going to bring his team over there, is it possible that he's perhaps looking to flip this into a profit fairly quickly by selling it to the owner of a new franchise? You said yourself that that stadium went for too cheap. If Cannon can buy that for for six hundred and then pay off the debt or whatever, it's a billion. Sell it to Chelsea. Any, yeah. <laughs> any new any new American football franchise is automatically going to come in probably worth at, at least double that. So Can might see an opportunity here for for a quick sale. I mean, he he might. He, you know, obviously we've got to speculate now. We don't know what's happening. That's just an option that could happen. We're not saying that is what is going to happen. Um, and just one sort of minor point before, again, we're going to bring James in because he's been quiet on this because you two have been making some excellent points. Um, if this sale does go ahead, I just want any Chelsea fan out there to know and any QPR fan and any Brentford fan that gets there, for every every time you get to Wembley, every beer you pay for is going to be going straight into Fulham's transfer budget. So just keep an eye on that for whenever you whenever you want to get pished on, you know, eight-pound lagers. Just keep an eye on that. You're funding our transfers. James, what was your reaction to this? Did the news make though, uh, that bigger headline over in Holland? Uh, no, not necessarily. But obviously I followed it on uh, British media. Um, first off, I'd like to uh, commend the points made by uh, Colin and Andy. Um, I find it extremely strange they made such a song and dance about wanting to redevelop Wembley and all the touring and throwing and all the inquiries. And they finally spent, as Colin rightly said, 757 million to get that uh, into fruition. Um, when in, I know hindsight is a wonderful thing, but there was a uh, course for a new national stadium to be built in Birmingham, 
where everybody in the country could reach Birmingham. If you're travelling from London, if you're travelling from Manchester, if you're travelling from other places, it's easy to reach. Um, I can't quite understand why the FA are advocating this, and I completely agree with Colin. They've got a responsibility to keep their own house in order. They should be doing their job. If you put the FA up against the, the Dutch FA, kind of Bay, and if you put the Dutch, if you put the FA up against the uh, the German National Football Association and the French National Football Association, uh, it just goes to show how different countries and people in certain positions go about their business. Um, they, as Colin rightly says, they should be reinvesting money. It's something they should be doing regardless of uh, a potential sale. And I also worry what uh, Khan's um, future ambitions are, because when you are the owner of something, you can basically you can do what you want. You, if you own it outright, if you want to sell it to a uh, new NFL franchise, you can. If you want to knock it down, you can. You can do whatever you want with it if you're the owner of that. And I think the FA, I think it's it's very short-sighted of them to entertain such a notion uh, i think people are getting carried away with that oh it'd be wonderful for for um uh to be uh have money be reinvested back in grassroots yes that would be lovely but there's the element of trust of what exactly will it be invested in how many pitches do you need for me it's more about uh, training younger managers if you look here in the netherlands for example managers start quite young and uh, the, the theory and the training they receive to go on to become professional managers is quite rigorous. And I don't believe that British uh, managers receive the same amount of, uh, of training. And um, I just think it's a little bit worrying because, as I say, if Carney's the only who can do what he likes. And if you did have a um, uh, an NFL franchise in London, what's to stop that becoming uh, a precedent where NFL clubs will look in not okay, not in the short term, but maybe in the long term. But okay, we managed to get an NL fr- uh, franchise in in London. Let's try for uh, another British city, for example. Let's try for uh, another uh, European city. So it's it's very very strange. I think I think the FA can uh, have to be um, have to be tough. They have to take a stance. And and but if it all comes down to money and they do choose to sell it, I think it would be uh, quite a sad decision. Okay, so I think we're sort of all of the can senses that no one quite no no one quite understands exactly what's going on james you you is this you you saying that you know the money that they get it should only go to coaching young british slap well it wouldn't be british it would be english managers or do you think that it should be sort of divided up you know where this money should should it all come in you think it should go to coaching is that what you're saying not necessarily all to coaching, but a, a fair amount. Obviously, you have to take in different factors like pitches and infrastructure and all these different things. But I think the actual coaching of the managers for the next generation, I think in certain cases that's been a bit um, that's been a bit overlooked. I mean, I, I'm sure we'll we'll touch on it uh, later on in the pod. But to give an example, uh, Stephen Gerrard has been linked with the Rangers job. Uh, Glasgow Rangers is a massive football club in Scotland one of the biggest clubs in the whole of whole of Britain, if you like. And for a manager who's only really just started off managing under 18s is has only really been managing primarily reserve games. And it's really only just been in his own new job for around about five minutes. And after those five minutes you're linked with one of the biggest clubs in the country. For me that really doesn't make a lot of sense. 
and if we had a, a de- if we had decent training methods where uh, the um, the elements were there for players that have just retired to to slowly build up their reputation before taking such a job, um, I think uh, that would be better for the future. Yeah, um, are there any more points that either of you guys want to make on Wembley? Because James had just managed to segue to our next topic very well, and I ideally wouldn't wouldn't want that to be skipped. But if there's anything you guys want to add to the whole Wembley debate, it's sort of open. Colin, I'll give you the first go. No, I mean I I could talk about this for hours, but um, no, I'm quite happy to, to to move on. I think I've uh, made my feelings known. Yeah, exactly. We could we could do a whole podcast on it. I did. I was thinking of suggesting just do one podcast on this and then just and have it as like Wembley a Wembley special. But you know, uh, times you know times pressing. Uh, Andy, do you have anything more that you wish to say on it? No, I think I've said all my wild conspiracy theories. So I'll, uh, I'll I'm happy to move on. Good. Which and I'll I'll leave the mic open to you because as James hinted to. It would appear that Steven Gerrard is going to be the next Rangers manager. Um, you know, James hinted that you know he's only been in the job in a managerial job for. In fact, I don't think it was even. I don't even know if he started the start of the season. I think he sort of took over mid uh, midway through. I may be wrong, but he's only just started the job, and now he's being linked with the Rangers job. What was yeah. your first thought when you when you heard that news? Uh it's a move to sell season tickets at Ibrox after another disappointing season. Um, he can't do a huge amount worse than what we've had in there recently. If anything, Rangers in the last six months have actually regressed from where we were when uh, Mark Warburton left. Um, I think, if nothing else, he will motivate players. Um if he's going to cut his teeth anywhere at a big club, presumably as an audition for the Liverpool job when Klopp eventually moves on, um, Scotland's probably not the worst place to go. Not necessarily. I mean, he will be under huge pressure here because every old firm manager is. But outside of the old firm games, he will have a lot of games that he will win comfortably. I mean, even Rangers in the state, they are this season have still won a fair amount of games, particularly against the, the bottom half of the table, comfortably. Gives them a chance to experiment. There is still some doubt as to whether Dave King, the chairman, actually has that kind of money to put into the club. You would assume Stephen Gerrard will be on a, a on a decent wage. Does that mean that there is money there, or does that actually cut into the money that Rangers will be able to spend the transfers? No one's entirely sure. Um... Can Rangers challenge Celtic? Yes, I think so. I think Celtic at various points this season have looked bored. Um, I still don't believe in Brendan Rodgers as much as a lot of people think. I think his kind of last year at Liverpool was more indicative of the kind of manager he is than the unbeaten season at Celtic last season. Um, and Rangers themselves know that it, all it takes is one manager with a good philosophy and some decent players uh, can derail a, a dynasty. You know, back in 1998, Vim Janssen came in for Celtic, uh, stopped Rangers winning 10 in a row when it seemed certain that was going to happen. Uh, and it's a small enough league where if Rangers can pick up the points against those other clubs, then they can keep close and make it come down to the old firm games. Um, unfortunately, 
the the main problem is that the old firm games have been the issue this season um, as Rangers have looked increasingly uh, anemic against Celtic so yeah I, I'm it's, sorry I've rambled on enough there I think um, yeah I, I'm at this point as a Rangers fan who's who's who sees no progress being made I'm I'm willing to give anyone a go at this point and if Steve Gerrard brings in some fresh ideas and uses his name to perhaps attract some some decent free agents then then I'm all for it at this point it's fine don't worry about rambling that's what we're that's what the podcast is here for <laughs> um Colin we were talking sort of on whatsapp before we came before we came on air about Leeds and the fact that uh, Mick McCarthy's for some reason been installed as favorite as the next Leeds manager even though Paul Heckney Bottingham's still in a job um do you think now is the right time for Steven Gerrard to make a move to a you know, up to senior level of football, you know, would you be happy with him at Leeds now? Or do you think that Steven Gerrard still needs some time um, to be, you know, uh, some more development time, as you know, some people might say? Um, this this subject makes me angry, right? Stephen we Ger- like that. We like it when you're angry. Well, you make good points when you're angry. If Steven Gerrard is appointed manager of Rangers which whether you want to go on history ticket sales whatever is still either the equal biggest or the biggest club in Scotland right then it's the whole game's gone potty you know the the guy has got no experience he's not a football manager has he even got his badges has he got his UEFA Pro license badges I don't know and it just seems it seems to be a very British thing that Anybody who's ever sort of um, been half decent in an England shirt, you know, or Manchester United side, somehow gets all these top jobs. You know, like when the Gary Neville experiment at Valencia happened. It's like, you know, the the Wales manager's job with with, uh, Ryan Giggs. In what planet, in any other business, would you appoint? It's like appointing the tea lady in charge of Typhoon. Do you know what I mean? It's, it just makes no sense, right? Um, just because he's played football doesn't mean he's, he's going to be a great football manager. Okay, he might be. But then the thing is, for him to get such a big gig, I mean, I'd be dubious for a start. I mean, what is so... Who does... He, I'm not attacking Stephen Gerrard here, but who does he think he is? And what does the English management system think they are that they can just parachute these guys into these plum jobs and as you say Andy he's going to be on a lot of money right when yeah. there's people who are working their asses off you know for, for little or nothing in in leagues one and two and they completely get overlooked and it goes I think completely full circle um, back to James's point about the, the disparity in how we train and install managers between here and the rest of Europe. They seem to have got it right, and we just keep to be, seem to be, oh, hmm, Phil Neville's retired, give him a job, or, oh, um, Steve Bruce has hung his boots up, give him a job then, the Premier League. Like, what? I mean, I, it just doesn't make any sense to me, and it just makes me angry. Right, good. Um, James, uh, you obviously sort of started this conversation 
um, uh, start this off with you know talking about Steve and Jared getting the job, you know, um, where the money should go into Bruce coaching. Is there anything else you'd sort of like to add to the – you've been pretty sort of vocal about this subject in the past because I think Stephen Gerrard, was he linked with the Ipswich job when Mick McCarthy left? I think that's sort of what started this off. Is there anything else you'd sort of like to add on whether or not you know, Stephen Gerrard's a good appointment for Rangers? Uh, yes, I would. Um, if you look at uh, the St Mirren manager, Jack Ross, he's just won the uh, the Scottish Championship. Why would you not? Um, why would you not give him an opportunity? He's obviously won the league, the division below, uh, upon which uh, Rangers are playing in. Obviously, he's accumulated uh, a lot of experience. And he's, I was just been looking. He's been managing for three years. That's three years more than Stephen Gerrard, and he's he's won a league title. Why why would that not be a, a safer bet? And uh, to give you another example, Scott Parker was also a tremendous uh, midfielder for Tottenham and for West Ham and for Cholton. Also played for England. He's managing uh, the Tottenham's under 18s at the minute. I don't hear anybody saying let's give Scott Parker a job. And uh, I think I agree with Colin. You know, to, to parachute names and pick him out of the air as in, oh, he'd be a good fit because he used to play for him. And in the case of Gary Neville, with a Valencia job, and that was just, uh, was was laughable. You know, he doesn't speak Spanish, and then you're parachuted into an environment where they only speak Spanish. So, you know, one plus one is two. Um, going back to the point I've raised in the pod before, if you look at the current Eredivisie managers at the top level here in the Netherlands, if you go through them one by one, you'll notice that the majority of managers in their own right in this league here, in this country, they all had substantial experience first as assistants at other clubs before taking jobs in their own right. There's also um, in the in the first division as well. There's assistant managers at teams like Groningen or Excelsior Rotterdam, some, uh, teams in in the Never regions or mid table this season that have left though that has left the backroom staff to take a job with a club in the Dutch second division to start their managerial career. And I just think, um, I think it's a dangerous precedent that, uh, that the British um, um, Managers Association are advocating with players being parachuted into certain jobs because um, experience is key. I mean, you look at Roy Hodgson, much maligned, but has literally managed to keep um, Crystal Palace up. And when they were under Pardew, they were in free fall. Um, as I say, I, I'm fortunate enough to interview professional players and managers here in this country. And when you li- when you speak to managers in particular, you realise the weight of the expectation and the job they have to do. I mean, I spoke to ex-Leeds player Robert Molinar not so long ago, and he told me about that his biggest challenge at his current club is not necessarily to try to keep them in the division. That's that's a given, but it's also in his opinion. He has to uh, try to change the way the team plays. Now, I, I don't necessarily think that Steven Gerrard is going to um, assess Rangers and think, well, the first thing I've got to do is change the way they play. I don't, because he hasn't got enough experience to come to such a decision. So uh, I think it's a dangerous precedent, precedent, and we'll have to see what happens. Um, and one of the uh, sort of main pieces of news that's come out this week is that Sam Allardyce has appeared to have ruffled a few feathers amongst the Everton fans. You know, there was that survey that came out last week that, you know, whether or not fans thought they were doing a good job. I can't remember the, what the exact question was. And we were talking about this on, on WhatsApp this week that, um, you know, I'm talking about Sam Allardyce. And I, I brought up the point that Sam Allardyce was brought in to save Everton from relegation 
when they were never in danger of relegation. So it was a case of the wrong, you know, the right man, you know, the wrong man at the wrong job, because he's he's you know he's brought in to save teams from relegation, but they were never in any threat. So that should have been, you know, when Ronald Koeman left at whatever point he left, that should have gone to someone like Chris Coleman, you know, who recently just been sacked, well not sacked, but recently departed from the Wales job and gone to Sunderland. And of course, Chris Coleman left Sunderland today. Um, but, but bring it back to Sam Allardyce. Is Sam Allardyce the right manager for Everton at this moment in time? Or, you know, should Everton cut ties, cut ties with him and go and go for someone else? Um, Andy, I shall start with you. Uh, see, this is not one for me because I've always liked Big Sam. Um, I think he is a decent manager. He's not going to appeal to everyone, obviously, for the style of football his teams tend to play. Although, worth remembering, he was the one who brought J.J. Okoc and Yuri Jerkaev and the likes over to to Britain, admittedly, at the kind of latter end of their career. Um, I think though that it probably should go to someone else at this point not necessarily because of what Big Sam's done although they haven't been great this season I think it's more about the ambitions of the owners and I don't think Sam Allardyce is the the man to meet those Um, it's clear that the owners see Everton as a top six club uh, even if they haven't necessarily given them the kind of money to to make that happen yet Um, it who I guess the question again then is who do you bring in? Um, a lot of the top managers are either in jobs or are very heavily linked with jobs. I mean, you look at the likes of Thomas Tuchel, who looks like he's going to go to PSG. Uh, you look at Ancelotti, who they're still talking about as potentially being a kind of uh, almost caretaker Arsenal manager. Um, yeah, it's, it's difficult to know who they could get in, who would drastically change the way they play. You you wonder if they maybe make an approach in the summer to Bournemouth for Eddie Howe. Um, yeah, I think it probably is time for Sam to go. And again, I don't necessarily think that's because of how, because of Sam himself. I think it's more to do with the owners and the kind of ambitions that they have for Everton going forward. Now, it's an inter- I, I like I like the fact you threw Eddie Howe, you know, out there because, you know, every, everyone t- and I think we did, uh, discussed on the podcast a, uh, a couple of weeks ago when asked when the Arsenal Wenger news came out, that Eddie Howe for for a while has been seen as the heir apparent to or one of the heir apparents to Arsene Wenger just because oh he plays the right style of football sort of thing, but a lot of people talk about you know is that too big a step going from Bournemouth straight to Arsenal? So Everton would be you know a fantastic intermediate intermediate club for him to manage you know going up going up the ladder uh colin what do you make of the whole uh, sam aldice situation i, I think uh, it's quite obvious that the, the manager that everton need um and obviously since it's available is steven gerrard <laughs> get him in at goodison yeah see how that goes um it's it's, it's a difficult one because i've got sort of sp- split thoughts on this but um, Adam Scott Allen, formerly of this parish, who's been on the podcast and he's on extra time sometimes. Um, he's an Everton fan, and the problem with Big Sam is he's, he's a he's a stopgap manager. He he will only take you so far. So if you want to play expansive football, 
don't go for Big Sam. Um, if you want to win any trophies, don't go for Big Sam. Um, if you want to, uh, you know, stay in the Premier League, you know, and you're looking a little bit dodgy, or, you know, you, you do a lot of business in serving pints of wine, then get Big Sam in. Do you know what I mean? I, I, can't, I can't defend Big Sam because his style of football is dreadful and when as many Everton fans um, have been so vocal about wanting him out, I think he's got to go. He's not the long-term solution. Um, and I also don't buy into the argument that he's brought in just to avoid relegation. Uh, because if that was the case, you wouldn't give him a two-year contract. You give him a twelve-month contract. Um, so, yeah, he, he he does what it says on the tin, but it's a pretty boring tin. And I think it's a little bit like the um, perhaps the Pulis factor. You know, you can sort of stomach it for so long, but eventually, the the stench of the football that you're playing is so bad that that the smell just drives you away from attending home games. That's my thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, James, I don't think, I don't know if we've ever discussed uh, Sam Allardyce with you on the podcast. He seems very much the uh, anti, you know, the, the antichrist of, you know, what the football that you'd be used to and you'd be used to in the Netherlands. Um, Big Sam, is he the right man for Everton? Well, A, is he the right man for Everton now? And is he the right man for Everton in the future? Uh, I'm not sure. I think that's the Everton's board prerogative to decide that. I think they've, they've obviously brought him in for a reason. I think uh, the manager that Everton should be looking at if they want to, uh, if they want what they claim they want, is uh, Sean jo- Sean Dice from Burnley. I think what he's, he's done a tremendous job with Burnley sitting seventh with a small budget and uh, a real um, hard work work ethic. And I think. Um, I think if Everton were looking, I think they should uh, give uh, Sean Dice a try. I think as regards to Allardyce, I do wonder how the man sleeps. Because if you've been England manager and you've wanted that job for your whole entire life and then you get it and then you drop a clangor and you it's taken away from you and you're never going to get it again. Yeah. Um, if, that, if that was me, I, I would have gone abroad or I would have retired on the spot. I wouldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have gone back into club management, and it's, it's such a shame in the manner upon which he uh, he let that go. Because I, I know I've, we've said in the pod before, but I personally feel more comfortable with Allardyce in charge this summer than uh, than Southgate. But that's just my own personal opinion. Um, obviously, Everton have ambitions with a lot of money to uh, to obtain Champions League football. When Koeman was in charge. Uh, of Everton, he let the Dutch media know on many occasions that he's got an awful lot of money to spend and that he has Champions League ambitions at Everton and he uh, let fly and uh, revealed an awful lot of information. But if you have uh, Champions League ambitions, you're not necessarily going to look to appoint Sam Allardyce. So I think uh, I think the Everton board have panicked and um, we've obviously wanted to stabilise and, and Big Sam has got them uh, in eighth and uh, for some... Uh, for some quarters of the of the supporters, that's that's not enough. And uh, I wonder, in some cases, what what chairman and what fans expect. I think it was uh, Brian Clough that said in an interview many many years ago that he believes that when you're a chairman, if you sack a manager, then you should be uh, 
you should um, relieve yourself of your duties as well. I think uh, with the hire, with the hire and fire culture in Great Britain, I think it's a little bit too trigger happy. And uh, I advocate what the Cowleys have done with Lincoln. They've uh, known success. They've won at Wembley. They won the um, the uh, non-league and they're in the League Two playoffs. And they've fully committed to Lincoln City. They've signed. Um, three-year deals to uh, to stay at the club and to fend off uh, interest from Ipswich and other clubs. And I believe that the commitment they have shown, especially in the lower leagues, will, will pay dividends. You mentioned Sean Dyche in your in your thing, James. Um, you know that uh, to uh, get Sean Dyche at Everton, you know, Sean Dyche would have, would have to be willing to take a step back because he's got European football now at Burnley, and he's not, and he doesn't have that at, at, at Everton next year. So it's going to take a lot to convince him, you know, to say, right, all I've done, all this work I've done with Burnley, you know, take him into Europe, uh, to say no to that straight away. It's going to be a tough ask for them to get, but, to get away from Burnley. But if I can, uh, if I can elaborate on that, Matt, how far will they go in Europe? It wasn't so long ago that West Ham were knocked out at the, in the preliminary rounds by a Romanian side. Uh, you saw that Everton themselves absolutely ripped apart by an Italian by the Italian side Atalanta, at the risk of angering Burnley supporters, and they've done a tremendous job this season and, and give them full credit. To qualify for Europe is a tremendous achievement, but I wonder how far they're actually going to go in Europe. Because um, one thing I've advocated in recent years is that the gap between the big European clubs and the smaller European clubs is getting uh, smaller and smaller and smaller. So whoever Burnley play in the preliminary rounds of the Europa League, it's going to be difficult for them. And I wonder if... um, I wonder if they will qualify for the group phase of the Europa League. I wonder how how long their European adventure will last. I hope it's not just two legs. I hope I'm wrong, but I think given the um, the European standard of many countries has improved in recent years, I think uh, maybe that will be the case. And for Sean Dyche as well, Everton are a big club, um, and uh, for him it would be uh, it would be a step up. And if he was to um, if he was to do well at Everton, then you're looking at maybe, uh, maybe even one of the bigger clubs uh, looking at him in future years. James, 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 I am disappointed in you. You're smart. You're a smart man. You I love know. your football. When I you know. talk about these little clubs making adventures into Europe, you're missing the obvious one. Who are you missing, James? Who am I missing? 2010. Yes, of course. No, yeah. Uh, yes, so don't course. say, don't say it can never happen again. No, uh, no, it, I'm not saying that. But if you look at the, um, if you look in 2010, and I'm not trying to track back now, but I will elaborate on 2010. The experience that Roy Hodgson had abroad, and the experience that he uh, accumulated through the years, and to get that work ethic out of those Fulham players to reach a European final was tremendous. And that, enca- en- that encapsulated all of the um, all of the um, British public, which is rightly so. But I'm not convinced with uh, with Fulham. They, w- you know, that, that London itself and, and Fulham and the club and everybody would, the whole ethos would be uh, completely open to that. And I, I think with Burnley, I think they'll, uh, I think they'll be happy to reach Europe. But I don't think, I don't necessarily know if they'll be as as 
passionate about playing in Europe as what Fulham were. I mean, when Fulham had their European nights against Shakhtar Donetsk and Hamburg and Juventus, that, that, that they were so up for it and they were so ready for it. I'm not sure that if Burnley draw a, a Slavia a Prague or, a, um, or um, a, a, a team from the East Block, for example, uh, Metalis Kharkiv, for example, I'm not necessarily sure that they're going to be... Uh, completely up for the home leg and, and, and be aware of what the, the demands are in Europe. Europe. Uh, okay, I'll leave you with that. Uh, Colin, you want to jump in before I uh, uh, before we uh, talked about Sean Dyche and before I corrected James on his knowledge of European football <laughs> and European football history. Uh, yeah, it was, it was just a quick one from me. I was going to say that um, the fact that Sam Allardyce has, <clears throat> excuse me, in inverted commas, done a good job um, and is in eighth place, and also the fact that Burnley are in seventh place are going to be playing in in Europe. I think it's a sad indictment of the Premier League. It's not just so for Everton especially, because Burnley, are, you know, are a half decent team. Everton a pony, right? But the only reason they are where they are is a little bit to do with Big Sam. It's a little bit to do with the players, but it's also to do with the fact that there's a hell of a lot of dirge in the Premier League um, and Everton have been able to rise above that OK um, that sort of takes us away from the serious uh, points that we like to do we like to have two serious points and then now we move on to the fun topic of the night and a lot has been made today that it's uh, Arsene Wenger's last uh, appearance at Old Trafford and as I was sort of thinking about it as I was watching the Sunday Supplement this morning it occurred to me that all those great memories that we have of you know us of Arsenal Man United down the years you know everyone talks about you know Mark Overmars at Old Trafford Sylvan Wiltord Pizzagate Van Nistelrooy's miss, miss penalty those are just the ones at Old Trafford you know Keenan Vieira fighting in the tunnel Thierry Henry's great goal all these mentions that all these moments that you want to mention Arsene Wenger's the last man standing from all of them. You know, he's the last, you know, I don't want to say relic, but he's the last uh, person that whenever we think of those moments, he's the last person that is connected with every with every single one of them. And it got me thinking about just how great that rivalry was, that sort of Manchester United-Arsenal rivalry from, you know, 1999 to really up until Arsenal's last trophy in 2005. Really until Keenan Vieira left the club, until Keenan Vieira left, once Roy Keenan and Patrick Vieira had gone from Arsenal and Manchester United respectively, that was then more or less the right, it just didn't feel the same after that. So my question to you guys is, we did we did something similar, you know, we talked about uh, what's the best derby in the world, you know, I, I, you know, I brought up Galatasaray and Fenerbahce, I can't remember what the others were, but what are the best, you know, uh, rivalries that are born out of competition rather than just locality. You know, Rangers Celtic is brought about, I mean, mainly it's because of competition, but also because of locality. You know, Arsenal, Chelsea, the same thing. Liverpool, Man United, to an extent, there's only about 30 miles between them, same thing. It's because of you know, their location. But what are the best rivalries that are brought out because of two teams that are fighting out for titles with each other? Uh, James, I shall kick off with you. Um, do you mean in a European sense, man? No, I just mean world worldwide. Pick any well, anyone well, you want. No. Okay, well, I, if I can start with the country that I live in, uh, Ajax PSV. Uh, Ajax have won 33 league titles. PSV have won 24. 
and uh, PSV have won their third title in four years this year and Ajax haven't won a title for four years and with them being the two most successful clubs in the country there is a healthy competitive rivalry every league season between uh, between those two um, PSV finished first this year Ajax second and um, yeah that's um, that's uh, an important rivalry I would also um I'd also look at um, how well uh, Besiktas have done in Turkey. I think they've uh, they've come between um, Fenerbahce and Galatasaray in recent years and uh, done very well in Europe. But obviously in Istanbul, you've got to contend with uh, Fenerbahce and uh, and Galatasaray. And I would also, uh, as one final point, I would look at um, Porto Benfica in um, in Portugal. Benfica lost at home to Tondela yesterday and uh, Porto played this evening against Malatimo. And I believe if Porto win, they will be champions or near enough be crowned champions. And if you look at the toing and throwing of uh, of the Portuguese league, it always appears to be uh, between the two biggest rivals of uh, Porto and Benfica. OK, so those are James's, those are James's nominations. Uh, Colin, your favourite you know, non, uh, non-derby rivalries in football? Yeah, I mean, well, well, first of all, I just want to doff my cap to, to Arsene Wenger as well, because uh, any man who can, you know, create an environment that allows Alex Ferguson to be assaulted by a pizza is a good man in my book. Um, and that's something he can always take away, Wenger, in his, in his scrapbook. Um, I, I don't, I can't really particularly think of one. Um I, I, I think, in terms of rivalry, I, I might go more down the line of managers. Um, I think Mourinho's always one to look out for. Um, if he doesn't have a rival, he'll find one. Um, he's, you know, he could start a fight in a room on his own. Um, so I, I think there's always something to come out of Mourinho, but I can't actually put it down to any particular clubs or, or anything like that. Maybe it's because I'm a Leeds United fan um, and everybody hates dirty Leeds. So they all seem to think we're rivals. So, um, yeah, that's perhaps. But nothing springs to my mind. I think, Andy, have you got any, any nominations? Uh, I feel slightly old man yells at clouds here, but part of me feels like the days of those real kind of rivalries are, are, are almost over. And so the, the the best comparison for me is the fact that uh, I'm also a huge uh, NBA fan, basketball. I uh, have been for a lot of years. And I've seen that change from the days where, you know, it was the Lakers versus the Celtics, you know, the Bulls versus the Pistons and so on. Teams with real genuine enmity against each other. To a situation now where... So many of these guys are friends off the court and, in football's case, off the pitch, um, that a lot of those rivalries no longer feel either genuine or exist at all. Um, I think there are still some. You still have your antagonists, Mourinho versus whoever is their, their big challenger. I expect we'll probably see a lot more kind of back and forth between him and, and Pep next season, assuming Mourinho does stay, which which seems likely. Um, obviously, you have your, your Rangers and Celtic, which goes much deeper than just two clubs fighting for titles. There's a whole religious aspect, which kind of fuels that. Um, South America, for similar reasons, you know, there's still a lot of really fierce rivalries there. 
particularly the likes of Bok and River Plate and so on. But yeah, for me, I, I think it feels odd to say this, but the advent of social media for me has, has diluted a lot of these rivalries so much because there's no longer mystique around them. There is, everything is now out there for everyone at all times. You know, 24-7, you can go on and find someone to have an argument about football with. But that makes it so prevalent that it kind of dilutes it. And so there's no mysticism around a lot of these rivalries anymore. And it kind of feels like football's in a very different place from what it was when, when Ferguson and Wenger went up against each other so often. Okay, I'm a bit sort of surprised that none of you mentioned the, the, the obvious one, which is El Clasico, Real Madrid-Barcelona, because that, 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 there'd be no greater you know, example. But I just my favourite one, seeing as, I, seeing as I sort of came with this, my favourite one, the years that I loved were the Liverpool-Chelsea rivalries when Jose Mourinho first came in. And all those great games, you know, starting off with that League Cup final when Gerrard, I don't know if it ever got credited down as an own goal or it was just a deflection. Coupled up with the Champions League semi-final. Coupled up with the fact, you know, because they played in either the court, they played in Europe every year for four years straight. And it was just great. It was great stuff to watch. You know, even after Jose Mourinho left and they had uh, Avram Grant in charge, that, that brilliant semi-final uh, at, at Stamford Bridge, you know, after John Arnarisa headed into his own net at Anfield. It was just, it was just great to watch. Um, and now it comes to the part of the show where James gets to flex his knowledge of his local football. And we ask James, what's been happening in Holland this week? And I believe there's, you're going to have to explain this. Uh, someone won the second division title in Holland, but did not get promoted. Please explain. That's correct. If I can start with the big news of the weekend, Matt, FC Twente have been relegated to the Dutch um, First Division for the first time in 34 years. They lost to 5-0 away to Vitesse Arnhem today. And this comes only eight years after winning the Eredivisie under Steve McLaren. And it's a big uh, fall from grace. It's uh, It's been coming for quite some time. The, uh, the club almost went bankrupt and they overspent on wages because that one solitary league title which they won, which was their very, very first uh, league title... They um, they kind of went a little bit overboard and thinking that they can close the gap on the traditional top three of IX Feyenoord and PSV, overspending on wages, becoming far too ambitious, and uh, and that kind of set in where bills could not be paid, and um, they uh, they found themselves in financial difficulty. It's going to be very very difficult for them to uh, to make a quick return to the Eredivisie. I, I think they'll be in the Dutch first division for at least two years. And you're absolutely correct. Um, the team of Ajax, uh, Young Ajax, which is actually Ajax Reserves, won the um, uh, the first division, but due to uh, league regulations and rules, they cannot be promoted. The reserve teams of FC Utrecht and PSV, uh, and I said also play in the first division. So, but the reason why they were instated in the first division was for the young players to gain more competitive experience. So, the team that finished second. Fortuna Sittard uh, returned to the Eredivisie uh, for the first time in 16 years and uh, they uh, they gained the automatic promotion slot so that's uh, that's very good for them 
Uh, and that now comes the difficult part of the um, promotion of the promotion playoffs. It's uh, it's quite strange here in the Netherlands how things work. The first division is made up of uh, of uh, twenty teams, and uh, the a full season can. Uh, contains 38 games and you have uh, where where you finish in the league dictates as to what playoff round you enter for example NSA finished third and the Graafschap finished fourth and they will enter the playoff round at the um, at the second round which is uh, a little bit strange but bear with me the teams that finished uh, the respective what they call period champion where they split the um, uh, they've split 36 games into f- um, four groups of nine, where you have a um, you have a g- uh, nine games, and whoever finishes uh, top after those specific nine games uh, are, are named what translates into period champion. And um, if you become period champion, you receive a you receive a, a buy, if you like, into the uh, promotion playoff first rounds. And to give you an example, FC Dordrecht, they finished. Um, uh, uh, period champion back early in this season and they start the playoffs this Tuesday night where they entertain Camus Leeuwarden and so the first rounds of the Dutch promotion playoffs uh, c- consist of FC Dordrecht against Camus and Maastricht against Almere City and the winners of those respective games go on to play the teams who finished in the relegation playoff places in the Eredivisie, which is likely to be Aurora Yese and Sparta Rotterdam. See, I told you it was complicated. I warned you a couple of weeks ago when we got around to explain this, it would be complicated. Um, we're going to put sort of the graphic that James sent, that James sent over. We're going to put it on the Man on the Post uh, Twitter page. So if you want to sort of reference back to it and just the graphic that James sent me a couple of weeks ago, it gives you some idea of what it is, but looking at it on paper and hearing it it's just bonkers it's yeah, it's, it's, it's it, i i can only imagine the amount of confusion that you know if the uh, if the championship in england started to bring in something like that you'd, i i'd love to explain like mick mccarthy having to explain his way around it it'll be a sight it will be a sight to see yeah well it's it's to um the reserve teams of i said utrecht um ajax and PSV, they never used to be in the first division. Uh, they used to, um, they used to just play uh, their matches in their respective uh, leagues. But the Dutch FA wanted to comp- uh, make a more competitive league. Wanted to give the young players more com- competitive um, experience, and they decided that they would do that. But also, as well, you have to remember with the first division um, that the that some of the teams in the first division. It's not always um, conducive for them. It's not always um, a massive target for them to gain promotion because finances are not like they are in England. For example, in the championship, a team would bust a gut to get into um, to get into the Premier League. Whereas, for example, in the Dutch First Division, you've got small teams like FC Os and Helmen Sport and Ekse um, Valvag uh, who don't have a lot of money. And are not necessarily able to uh, sustain a promotion push, and uh, and have to get their own houses in order on a financial setting. Because here in the Netherlands, if you um, if you live beyond your means, the Dutch FA keep an eye on you, and all clubs in all di- in both divisions are 
are supervised in a financial sense by the Dutch FA and they are put into um, different categories for their um, for their financial um, for their financial for the financial business. For example, if they're uh, overspending and they're not and their bookkeeping is not in order, they will receive warnings from the Dutch FA. Where the final warning is, if nothing, if the warnings are not adhered to by the clubs, then the Dutch FA will revoke their professional license. And that club that may well be playing in the Eredivisie, the top division here in the country, or the UPA League, which is the, translates as the first division in, in term, UPA League is the sponsor. If if a club of either division don't adhere to the warnings they receive for their financial conduct of their bookkeeping and the transfers and the players and the budget, if they don't adhere to these warnings set by the uh, by the Dutch FA, they are the final threat is for their license to be revoked. The club will be taken out of the league. And the club will be put back into amateur football. And I wonder if they ever had that rule in England, how many clubs would be put back to uh, to amateur spending. If you take, for example, Wolverhampton Wanderers, um, if the Dutch FA, I'm not, I'm not picking on Wolves, I'm just giving an example that they've spent an awful lot of money and uh, they gained promotion to the Premier League. If, for example, if you, if you had the same rule in the Netherlands as they had in England, I'm sure the, the the FA would have been obliged to give uh, Wolves financial um, financial warning, and their license may well have been revoked. But here it's all about the clubs being solvent and the clubs keeping their own house in order, and the Dutch FA take that very very seriously indeed. Okay, that leaves us only with the terms and conditions for listening to this podcast. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or through the Acast app. Listen out for Man on the Post Extra Time uh, every week with Chris, Ryan, Jesse and Justin. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at Man on the Post. Um, That only leaves us to say, oh, you guys must have social media as well. We've obviously got to plug that. James, your Twitter feed is? At James Rowe NL. Colin, your Twitter feed is? Uh, at Cass seven zero seven, with your wonderful Chris Waddle-looking profile picture, as we discussed the other <laughs> week. And Andy, are you on Twitter? I believe you are. Um, indeed, I am at Sake Tyson. At Sake Tyson, and I am on Twitter as well on at Matt Reese at Matt Reese sixty three M A T T R H Y S six three. And that means that all we've got to do now is say goodbye until next time. So, uh, James, t- it's time to say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Uh, Colin, over to you. All of what? Penultimate guest, Andy. Thanks, guys. Pleasure. And it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. And please always remember to have your man on the post. <laughs>